Uh, this morning we'll be reading from the chapter of John, uh, excuse me, book of John, chapter 1 through 10. I believe it's in, uh, set page 741 in the blue book in front of you. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more dis disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples, oh, excuse me baptized but his disciples so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee now he had to go through Samaria so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water Jesus said to her Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. But the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Thank you, Jaden. Keep your Bibles open to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. Jaden's actually in nursery this morning, and so I'm trying to figure out if he showed a dedication to scripture reading or lack of dedication to nursery. I can't figure it out, but I'm just glad he read. Probably used it as an opportunity to get out of there for a few minutes, you know, but John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Like he said, it's page 741. Just ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, for the reading of your word, we thank you for the gift of your word, we thank you for the power of your word, uh, and Lord, we just pray that it would just kind of take center stage now. Well, we ask that um, of everything that's done in this room, that all conviction comes from you, all teaching comes from you, uh, all discernment and sharpening and just leading comes from you, Lord. I pray that you just push me out of the way and that you take over this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's really kind of just this extreme amount of power that's held in beliefs that have been believed for a long time. Right? Once somebody has a reputation that's been formed, once, once there's a belief that's widespread, it's quite difficult to shake that reputation or convince people that that thing isn't true. So, for instance, Aristotle was, has long been thought of as one of the great thinkers of our world. For centuries after his death, philosophers, professors, learned men everywhere would, would quote Aristotle and point to him as an example of just intellect and wisdom. And once that reputation was established, few dared to even question the things that he taught. One of these things that Aristotle taught was that heavier objects fall faster than lighter objects. And so for 2,000 years after his death, this was seen as fact. It was a scientific fact. Because it seemed like it made sense, right? And Aristotle taught this after all. And so who are you to question Aristotle? So nobody apparently ever took the time to drop items of different weights off a high distance. Until, until 1589. Again, 2,000 years after Aristotle's death, Galileo brought a group of professors to the base of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And he had told them that he would invited them there that day to show them that Aristotle was actually wrong about this. That heavier objects don't fall any faster than lighter objects. And so he climbed the tower, carrying with him a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight. And he dropped them over the edge. And they both fell to the ground the exact same speed and both landed the exact same time. And what happened next showcases the power of belief. 
Because once he got down to the bottom tower, the professors began to argue with Galileo that he still hadn't proven anything, that Aristotle was still right, and that he must have tricked them somehow. Because it didn't matter what they actually saw, right? They viewed everything through a worldview, a lens that told them that no matter what, Aristotle was right. And so they were blind to any evidence to the contrary, no matter what their eyes viewed. See, preconceived, long-held beliefs that have been formed are the hardest things for human beings to shake. It's why so many people believe things about God that just simply aren't true. It's why so many people quote things from the Bible that literally aren't in the Bible anywhere. It's why so many divides exist in our world, why there's, why there's a lack of trust, why there's so much great angst in our world. It's, it's why two people can watch the same video and see different things. Last year, there was an internet sensation uh, that was kind of fun along these lines. We were at a small group, and, and, and we were wrapping up the lesson. All of a sudden, Logan and Lauren Schold came out with their phones and showed us this picture of a dress, right? And so every, some of you are laughing because you remembered already. Everybody was sharing this picture of the dress, and, and because somehow whoever looked at the dress, it looked different to different people, right? Half the people saw this dress as blue and black. The other half saw it as white and gold. Now, I looked it up. There's a scientific explanation to how this is possible, but I got incredibly bored reading it. So I'm not going to do that to you today, okay? But everybody looked at this dress, and, and half the people saw it as gold and white, and the people with eyes and a brain saw it as black and blue. And in that case, right, it was fun and it was harmless. It doesn't really mean anything, but too often this explains what we see in our world. Right? Half of our country saw our recent election one way, the other half saw the total opposite. Right? What we've learned in recent years is that even video evidence doesn't bring unanimous thoughts and feelings when it comes to police action shootings because people all over our country watch the same thing. And come to wildly different conclusions. And it's because every set of eyes in this world brings with it a life of experiences, uh, beliefs, backgrounds, stories, and more that actually shape what we see. That even when presented with the same information, we absorb that information in different ways. And this is undeniable. We're not progressing towards unity. In fact, if anything, what 2016 has taught us is that the name-calling and labeling and distrust and angst is only increasing. The divide is only getting bigger. And this can cause despair and hopelessness. I mean, is there a way out? Is there an even chance that there could exist in this world a place where people of all backgrounds and all races and all genders and all socioeconomic statuses could come together in unity and love? Is that even possible anymore? Well, today we're going to argue that Yes, it's entirely possible. But it's only possible through one means, and that is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus and Jesus alone has the unique ability to break down everything that divides us. And just so you know, he's done it before. This is not something new for him. All right, so today we're going to use the start of John 4 to illuminate this. There are a couple things that, that John wanted to teach his readers that if we just read them and scan over them, we're going we're gonna to miss them. Right? But John was intentional with the way he wrote his book. It's not by accident that the stories we find in John 3 and John 4 are back-to-back. John didn't write in chapters, we added those in, but, but John 3 and 4 each contain a long conversation that Jesus has with someone, and John records those for us back-to-back for a reason. He wants you to see the differences. He wants, he wants his readers to know how different these conversations are. He especially wants Jesus to jump off the page to you, because in John 3, if you weren't here, Jesus is engaged in a conversation with Nicodemus, and it's fascinating, and Nicodemus is an elite Jewish man. He's a religious leader of Israel, and he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and in the course of that conversation, Jesus obliterates everything Nicodemus had believed or trusted up until that moment. 
Maybe he was clinical at how precisely he went after each pillar of faith in Nicodemus' life and left them all lying in ruins. But man, that is just a firecracker compared to the bomb Jesus is going to drop all over the cultural norms of his day in John chapter 4. Because in John 3, Jesus is attacking one man's beliefs. In John 4, he blows everything up. And if God can get you to see that this morning, you'll see how fascinating to read this chapter is. You'll see how, how awesome and unafraid Jesus is, how aggressive he is when the situation calls for it. And if we can all just see what Jesus is up to in, in this chapter this morning, we can respond in humility and repentance. And then there's no limit to the Christian community and influence that he can create here in our midst. At the start of John chapter 4, we're told that Jesus left Judea. And he went back to Galilee because the Pharisees learned that his popularity was growing. And anyone gaining popularity was a threat to the Pharisees. So Jesus decides to head somewhere else. But he didn't do this because he was afraid of them. And we're told in the, the Gospel of Luke that Jesus at some point tells his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And once we get there, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And then Luke writes that Jesus then fixed his eyes on Jerusalem and set out on a direct course to the city. That guy's afraid of nothing. But you see, throughout John, we will see that he consistently operated on his own timeline. Jesus knows when it is he's to go to the cross. So his popularity, the amount of, his, of the, his fame, the amount of threat he poses needs to be managed until that time. Because he has things that he wants to accomplish before that time. And one of the most radical things that Jesus wanted to accomplish we find in verse 4. Verse 4 simply says this, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Okay, now you must know that Galilee was north of Judea, so Jesus needs to head north. There are three different ways that you can get there, but all three of them posed a problem. All right, the first way was to cross the Jordan River and then travel through a region called Perea. And the problem there is inherent, there's not a lot of bridges at this point in history. Okay, so crossing the Jordan was inconvenient to say the least. At, at flood times, it would probably be impossible. So the second option is that you would go and take a route along the coast of the Great Sea. You just walk along that. But this was a much further distance. And the third option was one that would seem to make sense to us, was just a direct line north. Shortest possible distance between Galilee and Judea. But most of the Jews traveling that day, however, chose option number one. Some chose option number two, none of them chose option number three. And it's because of what stood between Judea and Galilee was Samaria, and in Samaria were the Samaritans. And a hatred existed between Jews and Samaritans that ran really deep. Because the Samaritans were people of a mixed race. Hundreds of, years, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon. Some of the Jews there married among the Babylonians while they were there. And if you were here when we covered the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, you remember how much Jewish people valued being direct descendants of Abraham, how much they valued being pure-blooded Israelites, as they called it. So to have some of their own intermarry with those who weren't descendants of Abraham was just an affront to them. So later when they returned from exile, when they all come back to Jerusalem, anyone who couldn't verify that they were 100% Jewish was then banished, rejected, and condemned. And so these families, these discarded people settled right next to Judea in an area now in John 4 known as Samaria. And one of the things that hurt most in this rejection was that they were barred from ever entering the Jewish temple again. And so they did what hurt people do. They responded back in kind. 
They built their own temple. They put a temple up on Mount Gerizim in Samaria and claimed that it was the only valid place that you could worship God. And guess what? Jews aren't allowed in. And so this deepened the divide even further as the Jewish people saw this as blasphemy against God and his temple. And so both sides start ingraining into the next generation a deep-seated hatred for each other. Samaritans taught their children to despise the Jews. Jewish people taught their children the same and then began adding religious laws, rabbinic laws that forbid any association at all with Samaritans. To the point where it wasn't enough that you should despise them. You were now a sinner and a lawbreaker if you associated with them. And so this divide deepened and it became harder over hundreds of years. And by the time Jesus arrived, it was a common prayer among the Pharisees to pray and ask God to keep all Samaritans from experiencing the resurrection because they couldn't imagine heaven with a single Samaritan in it. And then in verse 4, we read, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because Jesus, man. Because Jesus doesn't care what you think. Because Jesus simply will not let culture dictate who matters and who doesn't. Because Jesus would never let lesser authorities than him determine the value of human beings. Because Jesus came for all. He came for the Nicodemuses of the world. Those who have enjoyed privilege and authority all their lives. And he came to tell them, you better not gloat in that and rely on that because I am your hope for salvation. And he also came for the Samaritans, the oppressed, the outcast, the despised, the hated, the forgotten. And he came to tell them that they are loved and they are valued and that he was their hope for salvation. And if you think that hundreds of years of deep-seated hatred and prejudice, the loss of his reputation, the scorn of others would have given Jesus pause before completing his mission, then you simply don't know Jesus. So he goes right through Samaria, and he's not traveling alone. He brings all his Jewish disciples. And listen, those boys were uncomfortable. They were not immune to the prejudice of that day. In fact, we're told in Luke chapter 9 of another time that Jesus wanted to head into a Samaritan town. And so he sent messengers ahead of the Samaritan town to tell them that he was coming. And they sent message back, said, you're a Jew, don't bother coming. And when they received this message, James and John, two-thirds of Jesus' inner circle, and the John who wrote the book that we're reading, suggest that Jesus used his power to call down fire from heaven and kill every single one of them. That's a slight overreaction, no? And Jesus rebukes them for it. And so here in John 4, Jesus takes these men that he's training and he's discipling. He said, guys, we're going into Samaria. And we get a little glimpse of how silly this division is because we're told where Jesus actually stops to rest is a well that Jacob built. And we're told this story in Genesis, in the Jewish scriptures, right? And John includes this detail to remind the readers that the Jews and Samaritans have a lot in common. There's very little they don't have in common, but for hundreds of years they focus exclusively on the differences between the two. And then verse 7, it gets more interesting. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now there's no good reason for a woman to be drawing water from a well at high noon none and we're going to get to that more next week but as jesus is sitting there tired from the journey this samaritan woman walks up and it's just jesus in this woman his disciples have already gone in to get food and let me tell you what this woman was expecting this encounter to be she's expecting there to be nothing but silence silence that was Awkward at best, intense at worst. The last thing she ever expects is for Jesus to open his mouth. And not only does he do that, then he asks her for a drink. 
And she can't just sit there and let that happen. She can't stay silent. Look at verse 9. The woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, one of the things that we don't get included for us in the written form is tone, right? It's possible that this woman asked this question to Jesus out of just sheer curiosity, right? It's possible that she's just surprised and stunned that he spoke and she's trying to figure it out. But my guess is this question had a whole lot more edge to it than that. Remember, she has no idea who Jesus is, right? And she's had a lifetime's worth of experience to tell her that he's not to be trusted, in fact, she goes ahead and lists them out for him in this question. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You hate me. You all pray that I won't even go to heaven. You see me as second class, a lower breed of humanity. You, you, you people have impressed my people for years. And secondly, I'm a woman. And Jewish males, especially rabbis, would never spoke to women who weren't their wives. Because they weren't seen as worthy of their time. They weren't seen as people on their level. And they even justified this using religious laws to, to touch a woman while she was menstruating would make you ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. And so the Pharisees just told all their guys, you don't know when that's happening, so just don't ever associate with them. On top of that, there's a rabbinic law that was added around the time of Jesus that shows us that it was being taught to all Jewish males in their upbringing that Samaritan women were menstruating constantly every day of the year. Now, I don't know how they explain pregnancies, right? but prejudice has never required logic, has it? Prejudice always requires ignorance to thrive. And so I feel that this question from this woman to Jesus was more like this. Wait a minute, you hate me. What's your angle here? What are you up to? Because she doesn't trust him, and it's for good reason. For her entire life, Jewish males have given her no reason to trust them. But I think there was just some curiosity thrown into the angst just because the request is so bizarre. Jesus isn't just talking to her. He's asking her for a drink. It was widely known in that day, any Jewish male that would share a dish or a cup with a Samaritan would be labeled as a Samaritan and then declared unclean. And man, this woman just wanted to get some water. She came out by herself at a time when it would be guaranteed that no one else would be there. At a time of day when, when she would gonna be alone. And now there's this Jewish guy here and he's asking her for a drink. And she's just thrown off and she's on edge. And she's confused, right? She engages in the conversation and Jesus continues in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We're going to unpack that answer more next week. But Jesus basically tells her this, lady, you're ignorant. Right? And if you only knew, if you only knew, all your angst would disappear. If you only knew, right, that, that all those years of prejudice and hatred would just become irrelevant in a moment. If you only knew, everything that you're worried about would quickly fade the background. If you only knew who he was. If she only knew what he was there to offer. If she only knew how she could receive it, then all, that would be all that matters to her. Jew, Samaritan, male, female, uh, religious laws, worship debates, boundary lines, hatred, discord, all are found to be lacking in importance and relevance when one realizes who Jesus is and what he offers. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Oh, dear lady, if you knew who was in your presence, you would be running to me and asking me for eternal life and I'd give it to you. 
See, throughout his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus kept telling him, man, you're focusing on all the wrong things. You're trusting in all the wrong things. You're believing in all the wrong things. Look up. I'm your answer. Everything you need can be found in me. And for the rest of this chapter, Jesus was going to tell this woman, you're, you're focusing on all the wrong things. You're held up on all the wrong things. You're asking all the wrong questions. You're not experiencing life because you're holding on to these, these hurts. And what you need to know is that I am your answer. Everything that you need can be found in me. And yes, all of his disciples would need to have the prejudice in their hearts dug out. This woman would need to let go of all the pain that she has stored up. And that work can happen. I can go to work on that, Jesus says, once your biggest need is met and I'm the answer to your biggest need. If you only knew who I was, if you only knew what I can do for you, all that other stuff would dissipate. Because the root of all prejudice is sin. I mean, this is the reason that we draw lines, the reason that we rank others, the reason that we devalue humans that are different than us is because we have wicked hearts that are stained by sin and this lies within all of us. And a lifetime of experiences shape how we see our world. And Jesus was telling this woman, do not miss me. Don't look at me and see all the hatred and prejudice that others have thrown onto you. See me. See who I am. Learn what I can do for you. If you only knew. And this chapter is a chapter of immense hope. Great hope for, for that time and for our world today. Because by the time we get to the end of John 4, she saw him. By the end of this chapter, she no longer sees him as a Jewish male. She no longer sees him as a threat that, that needs to be despised and cannot be trusted. She sees him as her hope for all eternity. And then an entire village has changed forever. And her story is just the first brick to fall. You watch through the New Testament as through Jesus more and more bricks began to fall. In Acts, we see Philip heading into Samaria voluntarily. And he goes there to, to preach the good news of Jesus to the Samaritans. And when many believe, he sends word back to all the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And, and guess who comes to lay their hands on them and pray with them? It's Peter and John. John, the author of our book. The John who in Luke 9 wanted to call down fire from heaven and kill an entire town of Samaritans is the John who Jesus forced to walk through Samaria. The John who will watch as Jesus will stay in Samaria for days and love on and teach these people. The John who will see the Samaritans display more faith in Jesus than anyone before the cross. The John who was scolded by Jesus for his prejudice and then trained by Jesus to open his eyes and see the world the way Jesus does. That the fields are ripe for harvest and people, all people need Jesus and he came for all the John who had that prejudice removed from his heart and went to Samaria and prayed for them and fellowship with them and ate with them and drank with them and loved them and celebrated what God had done in their lives. It is stories like John that are displayed throughout the New Testament as the church embodied this radical message from Jesus Christ. It was only the early church. It was the only place in the entire Roman Empire where Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, would all come together and worship as one. It was only in the early Christian church that all these groups came and were treated with equal dignity and value. It was only in the church that these groups shared any life together at all. And it was only possible because of what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 about Jesus. That Jesus himself is our peace who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between us. That's what he does. Because it's only possible because only in Jesus do we recognize two very important truths. 
that number one, all human beings are made in the image of God, and therefore all human beings have great and equal worth and dignity, and then number two, all human beings are level at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're all sinners who all need a savior to die for us in an act of amazing grace. And when Jesus took uh, our place on the cross, he made it possible for us to be reconciled to God, one and the same. And it should be, right? It should be that once Jesus had done that for us, that we would have no time for the irrelevant stuff that divides us. It should be, but it isn't. And it isn't because until you get to heaven or Jesus returns, we are all still going to fight that sinful nature in us. But listen, church, we must take up this fight. The dignity of every human being is a cause worth fighting for. The church of Jesus Christ must be a beacon of light in this world that dispels all ideas of racism, sexism, and any form of prejudice. The church must show this divided world that this is not how it has to be. We must do this because Jesus modeled this for us and calls us to this. We must do this because it was our Lord and Savior who walked right into Samaria. We must do this because it was our Lord and Savior who ate with the tax collectors and talked with the prostitutes and touched the lepers. We must do this because it was our Jesus who spit in the face of every single prejudice in his day and he did so unapologetically and with great zeal. We must do this because as the church of Jesus, we must do his work and make no mistake about it. This is his work. He started it thousands of years ago and he continues it today. And this work always starts within. For us specifically, this has to start within the community of First Baptist North and within our individual hearts. This is not possible unless we begin here. So how do we become a church that is a place for all? How does this church become a church that Jesus is proud of? How does this church become a church that serves all? How does this church over time look more and more and more like heaven? Well, we always start with repentance. We start by repenting of all the prejudice in our hearts. And to me, this is a twofold process. First, we must ask God in prayer to identify it for us, to reveal to us where it is that we are prejudiced. And secondly, when he reveals that, we repent of it and beg him to remove that from us. And this is for our good. Because nothing limits us as efficiently as prejudice does. You see, prejudice can take many forms, but, but it always, it's always based on two pillars. Right? And the first is isolationism. We, we see this with the Jews and Samaritans, right? The Jews went out of their way to isolate themselves from the Samaritans. They went out of their way to avoid them. They would travel around their region. They would not share a dish with them. They would not visit with them. They would not associate with them. They, they completely isolated themselves from them. And that isolation always leads to the second ingredient of prejudice, which is ignorance. They were flatly ignorant. It is laughable and impossible for all Samaritan women to menstruate year-round. But when the starting point is that I hate a group of people and I'm never around them, then I'll believe almost anything I'm told about them. Daryl Davis is a blues musician and an activist, but one night in 1983, he was playing in a bar full of white people. And Davis, an African-American, finished his set. A man came up to him to talk to him, and he said to Davis, I've never heard, never heard a black man play as well as Jerry Lee Lewis till tonight. And Davis told him, well, did you know that Jerry Lee Lewis actually learned how to play from black musicians, and this guy just wouldn't believe him. He called him a liar. And in the course of the conversation, it turns out the guy he was talking to was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. 
which gave Davis a really radical idea. He decided that he was going to start befriending members of the KKK. He said his, the idea was this. He just was confused. He just wanted to know how a group of people could hate him without even knowing him. And so over time, over a course of years, he befriended more than 20 members of the KKK. They even, they even indoctrinated him into the club. They started going to their meetings, right? And in their conversations, all he did was for all those years, he just let them ask whatever questions they wanted to ask. And what happened is the ignorance disappeared. And when ignorance disappears, prejudice doesn't stand a chance. And Daryl Davis is, is credited with bringing down the KKK in Maryland. It does not exist today because of his efforts. Because there is no more hatred when the ignorance is gone. Ignorance and isolation are key to prejudice. Right? Because given even half a chance, given even half a chance, human beings will climb out of the boxes you've assigned them to. I've heard more times than I can count, and I'm talking on, on really respected media organizations, more times than I can count that everyone who voted for our president-elect is either racist or misogynistic or okay with those things. Right? Because that's a really nice, easy label to slap on someone out of anger. Until you talk to them. And I've talked to two people, right, who voted for him and then burst out into tears on the way home. They felt terrible about having to support someone who used the rhetoric and taxes he did, but they, fed, they said they felt they had no other choice since their, their other option was a candidate who was so pro-abortion. Now, you can agree with them on that. You can disagree with them on that. You can disagree with them on not liking their vote. But talk to them, and you'll quickly find out you cannot put a label on them. So who is it, right? Who is it that you have a hard time loving? I'm going to tell you, acting like you're above this helps nobody. Confessing it to Christ and repenting of it does. We need to ask God to search our hearts and show us the prejudice that is within us. We're all sinners, so it's foolish to act like we're above this. But if we surrender this to Jesus, he alone has the power to remove this from us. And if you're honest this morning, just be honest with yourself. Most of you know who it is that rubs you the wrong way, even if you wouldn't admit it. Is it those whose skin is different than yours? Those whose nationality is different than yours? Those whose religion is different than yours? How about those who struggle with sins that you don't struggle with? Now, man, it's really easy to demonize those people. Those who vote differently than you. Those who are in a different economic class than you, either above or below. Those who parent differently than you. And ask God to identify them and then ask him to remove that prejudice from you. And then, listen, stop isolating yourself from them. Stop isolating yourself in order to remove the ignorance. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities to spend time with them. And allow God's spirit and the lack of isolation and the dwindling ignorance to melt that prejudice within you. Some of you are going to be asked by God today to befriend someone at work you've always ignored. Some of you are going to be asked by God today to invite a neighbor over for dinner that you would have never invited over for dinner. Some of you may be asked by God to, in, a, in a moment in the future to move into a new neighborhood altogether to be immersed in a culture that you've never been in. And it will be great for your soul and great for the name of Jesus. We must, we must repent of the prejudice within us. And secondly, we must, man, we've got to call out the sins of the choir. It's far too easy to call out the sins of culture, Right? It's far too easy as Christians just to bemoan our country, to wail about the state of our society, cry out about the world. It's far more difficult to call out the sins of the church. 
One day Jesus was, con- was, was confirming for a teacher, leading teacher of Jewish law, that to love God and to love your neighbors are the greatest commands in the Bible. And then this guy, the Bible says, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor after all? And so Jesus tells the story. Now, we don't have time for the whole story today, but when Jesus tells the story, you need to know this. He's not standing in Samaria. He's surrounded by Jews. He's being questioned by Jewish religious leaders, and he tells the story of a man who's, who, a Jewish man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, and there's a Jewish priest who passes by him, wanting to avoid becoming unclean religiously. He passes by and doesn't help him. And then there's a Jewish temple worker who comes by and sees the beaten man, but wanting to be, avoid being religiously unclean, he, he passes by and doesn't help him. And then Jesus introduces a third character in the story, and he says there was a Samaritan who came by. And just when he said those words, that would ratchet up the tension in the crowd immediately. And in the rest of the story, it's the Samaritan who stops and cares for the Jewish man. It's the Samaritan who bandages his womb. It's the Samaritan who takes him to a hotel and pays for his stay. And then Jesus looks around at all the Jewish people surrounding him, and he says to the teacher of law, Now you tell me who was the neighbor to the one who'd been hurt. And you know what the guy said? The one who showed mercy. Because he couldn't even bring himself to say the word the Samaritan. And it was in that context that Jesus told a story where the Samaritan is a hero, an example of what God is looking for, and they hated him for it. But he called out the sins of the choir anyway. Listen, if we spot any sort of prejudice at FBN, we must lovingly and firmly identify it and squash it. It simply cannot be allowed in the church of Jesus. So we repent of the prejudice in our hearts. We call out the sins of the choir. And thirdly, we just listen and empathize. We're not to be the judge over whether someone else's pain is valid, right? We don't get to make that call. God does. I've got a five-year-old daughter named Jim. Imagine if she gets hurt. I don't know how she gets hurt, but she gets hurt and starts crying. You'd expect me to run to her and ask, what's wrong? What hurts? How can I help? I'd be a terrible father if while she was crying, I'd be like, yeah, Jim, I don't like the way you're crying. Why don't you just simply calmly ask me to come over there and see if I can help? Maybe you could submit a request in writing or shoot me a text and tell me what's wrong. Right? It'd be incredibly unloving for me to pick apart her cry for help instead of just asking what hurts. Yet every single time an oppressed faction of our society or a group of minority people cry out in anguish, we are quick to tell them that they're grieving in all the wrong ways. The church of Jesus must not pick apart cries for pain. We must listen to them and empathize the best we can and ask them what we can do to help because to dismiss the pain of others is not Christ-like in the slightest. I'll go as far as saying this to the white men today because as you can see from this pastiness, I'm one of you. Listen, guys, we've been given an easier road based off of something that we have no say over whatsoever, our gender and the color of our skin. Our plights do not compare with the struggles and limitations that women and minorities have faced, and to deny this is to simply deny reality. And in the day and age of social media, when we all have so many forums, we have the ability to abuse that privilege by speaking out and discounting anyone who does not see the world like we do. And I think it's past time that we just listen. We should start just by listening to God's word. James 1.19 says it clearly. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
That verse should apply over the course of our lives. It definitely should apply to that verse the next time someone cries out in pain or claims there's an injustice or sees something entirely different than we do. Our first response as Christian men, our go-to move needs to be to shut our mouths and step back from the keyboards. And we should just listen and ask God to give us wisdom and ask him to show us what is it like to be in their shoes. Ask him to help us be voices of healing and grace, not to add to the toxicity and divide. I mean, the least we can do is just spend some time listening. Our progress on these matters and all matters will only go as far as our empathy will take us. We must repent of the prejudice in our hearts. We must call out the sins of the choir. We must listen and empathize. And lastly, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, he's the only hope we have in removing these sins from our hearts and healing the divides between us. He's, he's the only hope because Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for all our sins and also to remove the power of sin over us. He died to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. And whenever Jesus went, he caused awe and wonder at how he ignored every prejudice of his day. Read the Gospels. You see, Jesus leaves people in his wake who simply could not believe what they'd just seen and heard. He constantly went where he was told he should not go by those holding those prejudices. He ate with and touched and healed and loved and served everyone he was told to avoid, and he was hated for it. He was called a drunkard. He was called a sinner. He was called demon-possessed. And yes, when we get to John chapter 8, we're going to see that he's called a Samaritan. And the context of that is that it was being used as a racial slur. Fine, Jesus, if you're going to love those people, then we're just going to go ahead and see you as one of them. And he went anyway. His reputation was ruined completely, and he went anyway. He was mocked, and he went anyway. He was hated, and he loved them anyway. He opened himself to ridicule, and he went anyway. He went there to offer them himself. The one who brings peace, the one who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between people. He went to reconcile them to God to cause his church to be a place where men and women, Jew and Gentile, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, would all simply just become followers of Jesus. Equal in value, equal in love, equal in grace. That every tribe, every tongue, every language would speak the praises of Jesus and be united in our worship of him. He did that and they killed him for it killed him for it and you know what he says to us follow me follow me down this exact same path people won't understand people will ridicule you people will complain people will hate people will get angry follow me anyway because the value of humanity is a fight worth fighting for the dignity of all who bear the image of God is a battle worth taking up. So fix your eyes on Jesus and follow him. And may this church be a beacon of light in a divided world. Let's pray. Father, one of the great hurdles to any kind of discussion like this is that we are so quick to get defensive. We're so quick to, to dismiss this as not our problem and someone else's problem. We're so quick to, to point the finger back at someone else. And so God, I pray that around this room that your spirit would cover us with your grace and cause us not to do that this morning. That Lord, instead we would allow you as David prayed in his psalm to just search our hearts, God. 
Show us if there's any sort of unclean way in us. Show if there's any sort of harborment of bitterness or prejudice towards another group of people. God, one of the heartbreaking things about this is that often it's not even our fault. Often it's a result of, of upbringing and ignorance and, 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 and life experiences that have formed these in us. But Lord, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. They are displeasing to you. God, would you break down the dividing walls of hostility that we've put between us and other people? Would you soften our hearts to people in our world that we so quickly dismiss? And would you let FBM be a place that is a church that you are proud of? Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.